Hey there, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And we just want to provide a quick heads up before we dive into this week's episode with a bit of a warning. Uh, this episode does feature discussions of both suicide and incest. So something to know about uh, the content of this episode going in. But uh, if you have the sensibilities that you're willing to approach that material comfortably, then we hope you'll join us. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Well, everybody knows Custer died at Little Bighorn, but what our podcast presupposes is maybe he didn't. Welcome back to Butter With That, everybody, a movie podcast where we get together to talk about movies. I'm here with some good friends of mine, Connor, Christine, and Sam, and we are uh, plowing through our uh, sort of uh, post-holiday deflation mode. Uh, We are covering... Uh, putting the fun back in dysfunction, dysfunctional families throughout cinema and some of our favorite movies on the topic. So I'm very excited about this week's episode. But before we get into that, of course, I want to go around the horn and give everybody the floor to say their piece about anything that they've seen recently, anything that's caught their eye and anything that they want to report on. So uh, what's up? I watched a movie that I did not think that I would enjoy uh, over the holiday break uh, as we're recording this just after you know we're all back from break. and that is. 2013's Warm Bodies, the zombie love movie, Romeo and Juliet inspired Nicholas Holt feature. And you know what? It was good. I, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Definitely has that vibe of a like 2010s teen folk, you know, like audience kind of romantic movie. Uh, but I thought it was, it was pretty endearing. Um, I feel like I'm past the phase where zombie things I just have no interest in. Like enough time has passed where I've not consumed anything kind of zombie related, which was all the rage. And so friends and I just watched it on a whim and it's pretty funny, pretty emotional uh, and maybe a pick for an upcoming theme. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that. So that's something to keep an eye out for. And yeah, I remember kind of the zombie craze that uh, got a little bit too suffocating for a while there. Um, I watched the new uh, Knives Out. Meh, it was fine. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the performances. Uh, I guess it, I think it had, it like intensified the elements that I wasn't wild about in the first one. I really enjoyed the first one a, a ton, but I thought the second one had even more sort of like 2021 soundbitey dialogue like it felt like everything that all the characters were saying was a constant reminder that like brian johnson knows what's going on right now and these are all the little sound bites that he's gonna throw into a script to make sure it's very now and i sort of was kind of irritated by that but it's you know it's always fun to see a bunch of great actors shooting the shit on a a resort island. So that was fun, but didn't enjoy it as much as the first one. Christine, I know you just didn't like it because Michael Shannon wasn't in it, being his creepy throughout himself. Very true, very true. That always helps. And I've been, Alex, you've been watching a show called uh, George and Tammy, uh, based on George Jones and uh, Tammy Wynette and their relationship, uh, which is is good, but insane. It's, It's got a lot of moments that are just, bonkers so uh that's something maybe we'll be talking about down the road but how about you sam 
Well, I've watched uh, a couple things, but one that I'm still trying to figure out if I like or not is Black Phone. At this point, I want to say I feel whelmed. Not under, not over, just so. Just perfectly whelmed. (laughs) Perfectly whelmed. Uh, There are definitely some things in the movie that I really enjoyed and I thought were super, like, scary if they had just, like, taken it a little bit further. And then there are some choices where I was like, I do not care for that. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I feel like that I felt the same way, where I was like, there were parts of this that were really well done. And Ethan Hawke was really fun to watch. But then there were parts that was like, they were sort of lame, but like easily avoidably lame. <laughs> uh, but overall, yeah, I feel like Whelmed is a great place. Yeah, I, the ghosts were a very strange choice. Ex- yeah. Yes, totally. You know, I feel like this would be a great theme would be think movies that we were whelmed <laughs> whelming and, movies whelming and, and thinking about what makes a movie not under not over but just whelming and i, I boy, I, I bet that would be exciting <laughs> <laughs> i think our whole conversation would just be like yeah, whatever <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of exciting i'm very excited to discuss this week's uh selection it uh well i suppose that goes without saying it is mine uh, but it's it's one that I've been looking forward to for a long time and one that I uh, really adore revisiting every time that I've revisited it. And I don't know how many times that is anymore. Uh, we are talking uh, dysfunctional families. And so that brings us to a real contender for uh, one of cinema's most dysfunctional that the Tenenbaum family in 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums, a film directed by Wes Anderson, was, uh, co-written by Anderson and Owen Wilson, and was their third uh, piece as a writing team, uh, third in a row for them. Uh, had a budget of $21 million and went on to grow $71 million, making it Anderson's most successful film up until the Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014. Uh, we have him returning to form with his standby cinematographer, at least for all his live-action films, Robert Yeoen, who also shot some films we've discussed in the past, recently Love and Mercy and Dead Heat, among a lot of other films. Uh, film stars Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum, Angelica Houston as Ethelene Tenenbaum, Ben Stiller as Chaz, Gwyneth Paltrow as Margot, Luke Wilson as Richie, Danny Glover as Henry Sherman, Owen Wilson as Eli Cash, Raleigh Sinclair, played by Bill Murray, and uh, there's a bunch more. And uh, yeah, definitely one of my favorites, one that I was anxious to bring to the group, and one that I could gush about forever. So I'm really interested to get a bit of a sounding board here and see what everyone thought about it. I believe Connor and Christine have seen this before, but Sam, this is a new entry for you. So uh, going around the table, what did everyone think? Yeah, this is my second time seeing the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, I think we're, yeah, Bottle Rocket, which is Wes Anderson's first movie, was the first Wes Anderson movie I saw. And then I think it was Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, when I was in high school and college, super into Wes Anderson, probably a pretentious way, like a lot of people of college age are into Wes Anderson. Um, but looking back at his, I've seen most of his films. I'm kind of like mixed on his whole filmography, like Moonrise Kingdom, Fantastic Mr. Fox. I can't stand those movies. And I know that's a controversial opinion in some circles, uh, but Grand Budapest Hotel, Bottle Rocket, Royal Tenenbaums, Darjeeling Limited. I think that these films are really, um, fantastic. And so it was interesting going back to Royal Tenenbaums after not watching it for so long and not seeing Wes Anderson movie for a while. Uh, and I, th- I thought it was really good. Definitely, probably not as good as I remembered, but that's mostly story, plot, 
writing kind of side of things. But in terms of presentation, cinematography, uh, set design, all of that is just probably the best that Wes Anderson's ever done. Because it's that right mix of his fantastical kind of version of reality, but without going so far like Grand Budapest Hotel, where it breaks reality. And that movie is kind of purposeful. But I think this Royal Tenenbaums has a great balance of his style, but still feeling like we're in the real world. So overall, glad I uh, revisited it and can't wait to talk about it. I guess I'll follow that as a person who had uh, also seen it before. Yeah, I had watched Royal Tenenbaums a ton earlier in my life. I had the DVD, like uh, special director's set, uh, had the soundtrack constantly listen to the test soundtrack but it had been a while since i had seen it and so i was really cu- and it felt like when the royal tenenbaums came out or like i guess it felt like in my like sort of high school period or maybe middle school period whenever i was watching it a lot it felt like everyone was obsessed with the royal tenenbaums and so then it was one of these things where it was like it became maybe overplayed and suddenly it was cool not to like the Royal Tenenbaums. And so it was just had this sort of overexposure phenomenon. And so I was like, Hmm, I wonder what I will think about having not watched it in a long time and then revisiting it. And I thoroughly enjoyed the rewatch. Um, it was a wonderful trip down memory lane. Like the moment the movie begins and that theme hits, I'm like, Holy shit. I'm like back listening to that soundtrack and it it definitely was suddenly transporting me uh to a to another time and uh i love also speaking of time i love how sort of it's shot in the modern day but it's got so much wonderful timeless but slash 70s vibes which i really like and wes anderson plays wonderfully with setting and time and then yeah the classic wes anderson symmetrical shots and everything are just fun some great performances so i think there's some elements of the movie that don't uh i guess age quite as well but overall a thoroughly enjoy uh enjoyable rewatch so this was my first time watching the royal tenenbaums and also my first west anderson west anderson west anderson uh west anderson film uh in general and i'll say that i see the appeal i understand it but much like black phone i was just sort of whelmed there again definitely parts i enjoyed some things that i laughed out loud at um some things that i kind of really fucking hated and then you know by the end i did feel something so yeah, whelmed. A whelming experience. <clears throat> well, this is a movie for me that uh, really, really strikes a chord and always has. I I've definitely, like Christine, seen it. Uh, I can't, tell, like I said, I can't tell you how many times. And uh, I always find new things every time I watch it. I think there's a lot of like little visual Easter eggs in, in the way of image systems and semiotics that really come into play. And uh, there's a movie of a lot of firsts for me. Uh, like Sam, it was my first Wes Anderson film. Uh, that I saw, and it really got me interested in the rest of his work. And uh, like Connor, I think I have uh, very mixed feelings about his filmography. I tend to prefer his earlier work, and I think this is his strongest work because of one particular element, which we'll get to. And I think the best way for us to dissect this movie and to really get into the meat of it is probably not to go through the footsteps of the Tenenbaum's journey, but to discuss them as a family. 
you know, our being our dysfunctional family theme. As I said before, I don't know that you can uh, get too much more dysfunctional than the Tenenbaums, but I find their relationships really interesting. So I wanted to turn it over to the group to talk about these characters, the actors portraying them, and the dynamics at play in terms of their relationships. I Oh, you know what? Really quickly, actually, I should probably say uh, a little synopsis of the movie for those uh, uninitiated, uh, just to have some context here. Uh, the film follows the lives of the Tenenbaums uh, from their early roots as a so-called family of geniuses to their current state of respective disappointment when estranged patriarch Royal Tenenbaum tries to re-enter the family's lives on the pretense that he's dying, old tensions come to a head, unresolved family conflicts come to blows, and the Tenenbaums arrive at their most tumultuous yet cathartic chapter of their shared history. Uh, that having been said, uh, the family, the characters, what do we think? I feel like with a lot of Wes Anderson's movies, everything is so staged, very intentionally so, but sometimes it feels like the characters don't relate one another to one another in modes that feel sort of real, for lack of a better term. But I think what this movie does so well, and I think more successfully than some of his other movies, is that at the heart of the way that this family relates is something so real. And a real uh, something that I'll, a realization I had was that I'm like the age that a lot of the children are. And I, I don't think I ever realized how like that they're like in their thirties. <laughs> and I always like watch this movie thinking that they were younger just because they act like children. And it was sort of wonderfully refreshing to see like thirties characters in this mode of like childlike regression that it was like, everyone's dealing with this shit all like at any stage in their life. And so as far as like parental child dynamics, it was it was an interesting kind of returning to this movie and seeing sort of like adult children moving back into the family house and then entering this mode of like bickering, resentment, uh, and right, stirring up all the the sort of early childhood shit they had amongst one another. Um, so that's one thing I was thinking about, about while watching this family. But I guess back to my earlier point, I think that there's this sort of a, like acerbic kind of like biting way that everybody uh, and sort of coldness that Wes Anderson approaches some of his characters. But it, uh, like underlying, there is this wonderful ultimate tenderness that feels real and that feels like he's uh, exploring some very, uh, sort of lived in family, uh, relationships and dynamics. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think there's a really established ballast that grounds us within these extreme characters, uh, which we'll get to, but anybody else? I think what struck me this time was the kind of fullness of the lives of these characters where it's really like a, inter like generational story like we open with them as kids and learning about what you know these prodigies and how everybody kind of found their own version of failure while being successful when kids or teenagers or young adults um and how that kind of mixes throughout the film i, I don't know I, I can't quite put it together right with words but i think the way that the narrative is sewn together um creates a really compelling path to explore the themes of a family falling apart a neglectful father um, failed potential, 
uh, people striving to find happiness. Anxi- like this movie tackles a lot of well-worn themes. Uh, it kind of has a very sitcom-y premise, like all the kids come back home and the deadbeat dad tries to worm his way back into their lives. Uh, maybe for good reasons, probably for good reasons. Um, but through Wes Anderson's aesthetic and storytelling chops, along with his screenwriter, you know, um, pal Owen Wilson, longtime collaborator, um, it doesn't feel tropey. It doesn't feel, it, it feels fresh. When yeah. So I think what's great is the bedrock is there and like these well-known tropes and themes and ideas, but through a kind of fresh lens, both literally and how like the scenes are set up and designed, and then also through the performances as well. I think part of that too, Connor, is that it's a very economical film that's juggling a lot of characters and storylines, but makes room for everyone. So I think that's also kind of a, a big component of that. Uh, how about you, Sam? Interestingly, um, this movie might be one of the only ones that I didn't mind Bill Murray in. So he was very not Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I um, agree. He's really cast against type. Yeah. As Raleigh St. Clair. He's just like a non-entity in some ways which you know whatever um i really like the sibling dynamic um i think that some of the stereotypes are kind of funny and i just like how precious and like i just want to like hold luke wilson's character just tight and say it's like it's okay but i i gotta say margo i didn't care for any of that like at all actually um I did like the the little, well, I'm not actually your daughter and I'm not really a part of this family. Like, I think that could have been so interesting, but instead, like making her into some kind of like slut, I, I didn't care for that. Well, Sam, this is, I think, a great character to start with. I, I find Margot very interesting because I see her as uh, sort of the the prototype for a lot of other characters. Uh, she definitely... In a lot of ways, uh, as far as a character becoming a device, uh, a device in in particular uh, that is a female character that uh, is utilized for male characters' self-actualization and realizations. Um, It reminds me a lot of uh, Natalie Portman in Garden State. Reminds me of Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer. The interesting thing is that I think Margot is a developed character. Uh, I think she's interesting and her world is well fleshed out, uh, albeit through the lens of this fastidious secrecy. There's a pretty interesting, uh, actually, thesis that I found online. I read a couple of theses and uh, dissertations in the time off that I've had for this movie. One of them, though, pretty interesting. It was called um, Desire and Influence, Male Self-Realization and Film Progression Due to the Influential Women in the Films of Wes Anderson by a University of North Dakota student, Aaron Ann Myers. Uh, So a little bit of the uh, piece, which this... Chapter specifically addressing Margot begins with a quote from uh, the song Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones. It's featured in the movie. The lyrics being, don't question why she needs to be so free. She'll tell you it's the only way to be. She just can't be chained to a life where nothing's gained and nothing's lost at such a cost. Following that, she cites the song and says that she in the lyrics above is a fitting description of Margot Tenenbaum, the most influential character in the film, The Royal Tenenbaums. The Rolling Stones classic Ruby Tuesday epitomizes Margot and her extreme secrecy that allows her to be free from fear of inadequacy, judgment, and the confines of her hollow marriage. Achieving her freedom comes uh, from telling lies that come at the cost of having to be chained to a stagnant and loveless marriage, as well as constantly denying the love that she has for her brother Richie, even to herself. 
Fittingly, Anderson uses the song in this crucial scene in the film where Richie and Margot both proclaim their love for one another, and Margot discloses the details of her many secrets to Richie, freeing her. Keeping so many secrets left her living a life where nothing's gained and nothing's lost without being able to share her life and true feelings. This divulgence alters the whole feel and movement of the film from hopelessly dysfunctional to feasibly functional and prime for redemption. I think that's an interesting take. I still kind of disagree. I still think that this character, while interestingly developed, doesn't have as pronounced an arc as the other characters and really does serve as a device for other characters' self-actualization and realizations, albeit a character that within that familiar dynamic is way more developed than in other examples. So I feel pretty conflicted about Margot. I will say that I think Margot is one of Gwyneth Paltrow's better performances. Uh, um, yeah. And so that, I think, was really fun. When I, I don't think Gwyneth Paltrow and, like, amazing performer, <laughs> but returning to this movie, I, I really thought that she ha- she, like, moves between this sort of jaded... I've seen it all and my family rejects me mode. And then when you see those moments with Luke Wilson's character and like her feelings of sadness and, and being, as you said, Dave trapped in this relationship, this marriage to Bill Murray that she doesn't want to be a part of. I think that, uh, yeah, I think her performance really shines when she's moving between those kind of those modes. And like, I don't know. I think it's also the fact that I, that so many of those scenes I love so much, like her just in the bathtub using her foot to uh, like move the door. It's just those classic. And I think that's that's a that's a beautiful marriage of wonderful direction from Wes Anderson and Gwyneth Paltrow just embodying that character and that moment of just like leave me the fuck alone. I'm in the bathtub. I'm smoking a cigarette and I'm watching TV. I don't want to talk to anyone. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think those moments Paltrow, uh, definitely shines, but I would also agree that her character is a little devicey. You know, I feel like it's a very early two thousands, like, you know, like it girl kind of thing that she sort of used more as image than, maybe fully, fully realized character. Mm. Um, but I do enjoy the performance. I totally forgot when watching it, you know, the first time a while ago uh, was the, and I mentioned this earlier, looking at the family through the, well, the time when they were children. And I think young Margot, played by Irina Gorveya, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, we learn a lot about Royal, <laughs> about how he treats his family, treats the folks who are around him. There's a great scene where she writes a play uh, for her birthday. Uh, and I just that really love amazing. It. And I think l- looking at the family through the eyes of little Margot, I thought was really fascinating. And while definitely issues with grown up Margot and how that was written, I thought that the performance of young Margot and her delivery of just this fed up person already when she's only like 10 years old, um, I thought was really great. And I love Royal's uh, critique of the play. He's like, it's just a bunch of children in costumes. I I don't get it. And the characters weren't believable to me. Right, the characters were believable. And I feel like that's Wes Anderson being like, this is what people say about my movies. (laughs) It's just a bunch of children, adult children running around in cool costumes. 
I mean, that is kind of like that is the adults in the Royal Tenenbaums, true, uh, true. especially Ben Stiller and his kids in the iconic red tracksuits. Yeah, well, it's also the iconic addressing of her being othered in the family, which, you know, as the adopted sibling, that Royal constantly reminds everyone is adopted. Uh, there is a sort of distance that's created in that way at a formative age. Yeah. Well, and that feels so real, too, that we know all older people in our lives who just, oh, well, this is blah, blah, blah. Like, that just feels like a very real, like, older generational moment. And when you're a kid, and you're like, why do you always say things that way? Dad, uncle, grandma, whoever. It's it, that it's mo- little moments like that. I think that help the film feel really natural and feel like a real family, even though it's set up in this really absurd environment and world. Well, we've got some other siblings on our hands, too. I suppose that should lead us to Richie because their relationship is uh, one of the more dynamic and dysfunctional ones in the movie. Uh, Richie being the um, the youngest sibling of the Tenenbaum family, a former pro tennis star uh, with a lot of other childhood passions such as painting, uh, but exclusively painting his, uh, well, moments within his family, but largely portraits of Margot. Uh, we come to understand that there is uh, an, uh, something of, to put it mildly, star-crossed lovers scenario in the sense that they are adopted uh, brother and sister. How do we feel about Richie? I think that Richie is an interesting blank slate onto which you can project a lot of things through other characters, but uh, also a character with depth all his own. What do you guys think? I love the iconography of the tennis headband symbolizing like clinging to past glory clinging to past life mm-hmm. and what happened before um i mean Wes anderson's usually always phenomenal with costuming but i feel like in the royal tenenbaums everyone's dress helps us greatly inform what's going on inside someone's interiority um helps i got us- a lot of notes on that in the production section so yeah that's a that's a good uh good pick up there and so i think richie is just has the best outfit for most of it and then you know when he changes shaves his head gets rid of the band attempt suicide which i'm sure we'll touch on shortly and so i think richie is as um and luke wilson i think is an underrated performer and i think he's really great in this and, and in that role questionable elements but uh come on the scene where he's like just melts down in his final tennis match i think it's just hilarious and voiced yeah the commentators were wes anderson and uh uh andrew wilson the one of the wilson's brothers uh, so interesting little directorial cameo there. Also, uh, Andrew Wilson appears twice uh, elsewhere in the movie as uh, Margot's actual biological father when we see how she lost her finger in a wood chopping accident. And uh, also the little BB that is lodged in Chaz's hand that we'll get to is actually uh, truly lodged in the hand of uh, Andrew Wilson because of Owen Wilson shooting him at a young age. That's funny. I was like, that cannot be a practical effect. That looks way too real. They had to have found the real hand. Now I know. Yeah, I mean, Luke Wilson, I am not a fan of, uh, but once again, it's like he is Richie, and I feel like this is such, and I think this is also a testament to, like, when you make films with friends, you know? It's like Wes Anderson and the Owen, or the Wilson brothers, you know, they did Bottle Rocket, they are clearly friends, and so they know, and probably those characters are written with like a person like Luke Wilson in mind. And so I think what you're, you're so right in that there's so much we don't know about Richie and Luke Wilson definitely plays a lot very close. Like the performance is sort of a little bit kind of closed off, but Luke Wilson does have that, that 
sort of eye tenderness. I feel like I've been talking a lot about eye performances, maybe too much, but there's definitely a wonderful Luke Wilson tenderness to the way he plays Richie. And I think that's vital in both the comedic scenes, but also in the most intense scenes of the movie, as we've addressed his attempted suicide, which it like, it's a a sudden drop in a movie that has been building. And then suddenly, yeah, I mean, yeah, like emotionally wrenching. And I think Luke Wilson through this mode of tenderness throughout can really hold that scene. And, you know, we're laughing at these characters through much of the movie, but in the, in that moment, you know, it, it, it's jarring and it's, sad and emotional and yeah i think it's strong strong mode and strong performance from from luke wilson christine when you said that you don't care for luke wilson heather is down here and she's like Uh, putting together a puzzle and she went (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) i mean give me some good other luke wilson performances old school bottle rocket blonde Okay, Bottle Rocket, sure. Okay, Legally... But, like, he's not good in Legally Blonde. That movie is just good. (laughs) (laughs) True. Very true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Richie as a character, I I think he ended up being my favorite just because I felt so intrigued and bad for him. Like I mentioned before, I just wanted to, like, take him and hold him to my chest and be like, it's okay. Even before we get to the attempted suicide. And when that scene happened, I was like... Damn, I I don't think that I was really expecting it at all. And when he just like fucking leaves the hospital, I'm like, I, but should you? Um, but whatever. That scene when he leaves the hospital too, it's it's royal being turned away because of the family's instruction that he can't be a visitor. And then uh, him just outside with Pagoda, who's an old friend of Royals and uh, sort of like a family hand uh, around the house and. What is Royal saying is something to the effect of like, we can shimmy up that gutter and then we can blah, blah, like this impossible, like elaborate, like hospital infiltration scam. And then uh, Pagoda just turns uh, like in the other direction. There he goes. And it's just Richie getting into the cab. Yeah, he and Margot's relationship is obviously a tricky and dicey one. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not uh, blood incest. As, as we say in the movie later on is like uh, when he, he tells his father about it is, I don't, I don't know how she feels, and Royal's response is, well, I can imagine it's probably illegal. Richie fires back, well, uh, we're not related by blood. And Royal's response to that is pretty great, is, um, well, still frowned upon. But then what isn't these days? And I think this movie, like, you know, though it it's necessary for there to be a sense of, like, romantic tension for these characters that is felt, I don't think the movie shies away from addressing that it is weird, um, I mean, at one point, it's literally brought up by Eli Cash's character, played by Owen Wilson, who's in this affair with Margot. As they're breaking it off, he points out, uh, you're in love with your brother, which is weird and gross. Uh, and then, like, even the, it's a scene when it holds on, they're, they're finally spilling their guts to each other in this cathartic moment for the characters. We see it in this one shot where they begin making out, and I feel like it's it's less romantic than it is awkward not because of my sensibilities as a viewer, but because of the way the film presents that one shot. So I think it's supposed to be both, kind of. And I, but I don't think that, I think within, I think the movie addresses it as two people that are also so lonely. And mm-hmm. like Margot is literally 
isolated and as you said Dave othered by her own fam by her father uh, and maybe not the rest of her family but it's like you see these two characters so deeply needing like companionship and feelings of belongingness. Yeah, it's fucking weird. But I also think that the movie's themes and the way that it like approaches these characters in some ways, it's like it kind of builds towards this. Well, and we talked about regression earlier. I mean, this this happens inside of their Richie's childhood tent. Mm-hmm. And it seems at least the physical, the physicality that we see, if I'm not wrong, is when Margot leaves the tent and say, we have to keep this a secret. Mm. Uh, and so I think framed within that is regression, childhood, lonely people. And then when they leave the tent, that's, you know, end of scene. Well, I suppose uh, having addressed Margot and Richie, that brings us to the other sibling Tenenbaum, that being Chaz played by Ben Stiller. Sam, uh, I, uh, it's, I understand why you're uh, the sort of person who's who addresses Richie as like, oh, it's okay, blah. You know, I, I got to give you a hug and reassure you. I feel that way for Chaz. <laughs> I think he's a pretty interesting character. Uh, he is the only uh, sibling in the family to have raised children. Uh, his wife, uh, according to the film, at the onset was killed the previous summer, uh, and that has sort of influenced his attitude to raising his children. And uh, is perhaps reinforced by his uh, childhood rearing himself. Any thoughts on Chaz? Also not a huge fan of Ben Stiller, but gotta say this is a great performance from him. A classic. I feel like I missed this. Apologies. Why the fucking tracksuits all the time? (laughs) They look dope. (laughs) They look so good. It's not addressed uh, in the movie, but uh, it is part of the production notes that we'll get to. So yeah, yeah, hang on to that. Well, I don't know about the production notes, but I think thematically you have a character like Chaz who was highly, highly driven and motivated as a kid, maybe to an obsessive degree. And so Chaz is like the business exec who got really rich and really successful early on in his life. Uh, A preternatural childhood understanding of international finance. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, it's like domestic, uh, personal domestic finances I can't figure out. So kudos. (laughs) But also a character who uh, has intense, I think, anxiety, control, like uh, issues with control and needs routine. And I feel like the tracksuit is the perfect reflection of a character that wants consistency, uh, wants predictability. And I think the idea that this character like Chaz is always in a red tracksuit, as is uh, as are his two sons. I think it's a perfect sort of visual representation of a person that wants uniformity, predictability, uh, because chaos and danger is like too much to handle. Sartorial chaos is too much to handle. Maybe very much on the right track there. Yeah. The right track. Hey, ah, oh, wow. We're getting good for this. <laughs> I adore Chaz because a lot of he he is sort of the the lens through which we're judging the family. I think he's really the one with the most r- resentment rooted in childhood rearing. He and his father obviously a very traumatic relationship. Uh, there's the the iconic uh, BB gun fight on uh, Eagles Island where uh, 
where he, he, he or Chaz himself actually litigated uh, his father Royal's purchasing of the house. Uh, meanwhile, they're like having this game where it's Richie and Eli, uh, childhood friends, up against Chaz and Royal having this BB gun fight. But Royal turns on Chaz for essentially no reason. <laughs> and it's also expressed that, you know, um, in their childhood, Richie was taken out. He was the favored child uh, in Royal's eyes. And, and, and there was a sort of resentment both between Margot and through Chaz. And uh, both of their reactions was kind of different versions of detachment because of it. Uh, for Chaz, it's like an extreme obsessive sense of control, even as a child. Um, we make mention of his him like early on, his uh, fastidiousness in having his own entrepreneurial projects and doing his own research in like developing his field and his craft, uh, breeding Dalmatian mice that he sold to a, uh, a shop in Little Tokyo, which does not exist in New York, something we'll get back to later. But um, even like when he comes back to the house, uh, there's the scene where he walks into his room, which has been his sanctuary as a child. It's it's a room that still reeks of the sense of like control that he needs uh, as as a form of separation from a family that he feels doesn't uh, care for him. And the first thing that he sees in there is uh, Richie's portrait, the bomber. And he asks, who put that in here? And immediately turns it around because it's a, a familial violation of a space that is supposed to be a sanctuary from that. So there's a lot of depth to Chaz that I think is really great and really interesting. And he, I think he's got a great arc in the sense that he truly resents Royal up at pretty much up until the end. Uh, kind of unlike the other two siblings, Richie, who is kind of overweening in his allegiance to Royal and Margot, who is pretty much detached. And I think like the handling of, I think both Richie and Margot, what might seem at first as sort of the Wes Anderson uh, quirky treatment you know, oh, look at this character who always runs fire drills with his son and the dog, you know, and all the things that make us laugh, but that can maybe err on the side of um, devicey and quirky and then not move beyond that as a character dimension. But I think by the end, uh, Chaz has such a wonderful uh, arc and is a, I mean, he's a character trying to overcome um grief or not overcome grief but like embrace grief and acknowledge it and encourage his sons to like acknowledge death and grief and go through that uh process of mourning and so i think the movie really uh, uh touches on that beautifully with with chaz um and yeah it, this is definitely a role that i can love ben stiller in unlike many of his roles. <laughs> and his sons are so cute. They're there. And when um, Royal takes them out and you will also watch like Royal trying to fulfill this sort of grandfather responsive with this role of grandfather doting grandfather, but he's irresponsible in so many ways, but you also see a nice uh, relationship building in which Royal takes them out to like explore the world and ride on trash can buses or like uh, garbage trucks and go go to cockfights. Yeah, Do okay, dog yeah, fights. yeah. Some very questionable yes, decisions, but it's a wonderful opening up for the family. And and just right before they they go out on that excursion, the, the exchange that Royal has with Ethelene, and we'll get to the two of them in just a moment, but. Uh, him saying to them, oh, you know, they're, they're boys. You got to brew some recklessness into them. And Ethelene uh, fires back. I think that's terrible advice. And then after a pause, Royal just offers, no, you don't. 
And you can tell that for both of them, they don't believe that that's true. And it is kind of necessary. It is a necessity to rile these kids up a little bit to offer them something beyond the sense of overweening control of things that are outside of your purview of control. One just last moment I wanted to touch on with Chaz is his just brief interactions with uh, Danny Glover's Henry Sherman, who we haven't really touched on much. Um, Danny Glover, who's great. Yeah, he's he's a treasure. Um, it's like, well, Mr. Sherman, yes, I've known him for 10 years as your accountant. Uh, and then at the end, when it's like his son is there, um, when he's marrying uh, Angelica Houston, and I just thought that was like a really touching moment at the end, like just tiny little moments that didn't need really much resolution. But uh, really, Dave, as you brought up economical screenplay, uh, tying a loose end of understanding of these two men are widowers, um, having sons, mm-hmm. like I thought that was a really touching moment. Uh, toward the end of uh, a pretty chaotic end of the movie, but a really uh, touching moment to um, one of the final kind of scenes, I thought. Just deserved a little shout out there and also shouting out Danny Glover too. Absolutely. This moment where, you know, Chaz is talking to him and it's like, it's, it, it, you know, it, they're preparing for the wedding uh, when Ethleen decides that she is going to marry Sherman, uh, Henry Sherman, after the divorce granted by Royal. Yeah, just that little moment when he comes in and... Um, Henry reminds him, like, yes, I'm a widower. And Chaz is like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, You know, I'm a widower, too. And Danny Glover just radiating tenderness and, like, sweetness in this movie, albeit, like, a little bit clumsy, but, like, very sweet, um, just reaches out and puts his arm on him and says, I know, Chaz. Just illustrating that, like, you know, Henry, despite being a, a familial outsider, is perhaps more connected to this family than anyone has given him credit for except Ethleen. And and kind of the closure or, or the, the the recognition that Chaz has always needed. So a great little moment there with Danny Glover also, who plays a wonderful role. And then, of course, we have Ethleen and Royal Tenenbaum, uh, the parents of the Tenenbaum family, Angelica Houston and Gene Hackman, respectively. Uh, what are our thoughts on these two characters? I mean, you got to hate Royal, but you got to love Gene Hackman's performance. It's It's <laughs> like... It's great. I mean, I I still hate Royal, and I think he's even by the end of the film, you know, he's got his arc, but he's still uh, manipulative and self serving. As are many human, you know, he's a. In no way does it justify any of the terrible things he does and says that are like so cringy and toxic and terrible. But Gene Hackman, man. I think he's also the perfect person for that role because he I've seen him in some other very in some other uh, basically a lot of his other performances. He's also extremely uh, toxic and and, uh, does questionable things. But his timing, his delivery is just so good. And I think he's sort of like this sort of old guard Hollywood as Royal and as Royal recognizing times are changing and he's acted and behaved in terrible ways. I feel like it's sort of like a wonderful uh, reckoning for that character and sort of like, I don't know the sort of movies and roles that I think of when I think of Gene Hackman. And it, this movie is a nice reckoning of sorts, both on a family level and I think a larger level. Yeah. I think the um, Royal I, I actually really liked him as a character. He's an absolute shit, but I think he is like really genuine and sincere, sincerely loves uh, his grandsons. I mean, he puts forth the effort 
to be like, Hey, maybe like we can hang out. Like maybe you should tell your dad, you want to meet me for real. And I think there's even a moment he has where he's like, I, was it like, I feel happy for one of the first times or like, I really enjoyed this for one of the first times. Saying that uh, when he's ousted in the, uh, when his, his uh, terminal diagnosis is exposed for the fraud that it is so that he can have a place to dwell with his family because he's being kicked out of the Lindbergh palace hotel. Yeah. He says something to the effect of, um, I, I just have to say the last six weeks have been the best six weeks of my life. And then we get the Alec Baldwin narration over that immediately after making the statement. Royal realized it was true. That scene with Angelica Houston when he's like, but I'm dying. <laughs> and then, oh my God. And then she breaks down and then he's like, wait, no, no. Actually, I'm not dying. And she's like, are you, are, are you not dying? <laughs> that is, it's a classic scene. The way it's, performed framed everything it's like one of the best scenes in a movie i think ever and yeah it's so good just a one shot following them down the street and it it just stays with that moment with them but stays on royal so that like when ethleen is disgusted with him revealing that this manipulative false diagnosis is a fraud she slaps him in the face shouting what's wrong with you and storms out of the frame and then offers ethel baby i am dying and then she walks back into frame confronting him. And he looks like standoff. He's like, is she going to hit me again? To which he asks, are you or aren't you? And his line, his response, what, dying? Uh, yeah. It's just so good. I think when going back and rewatching it, I, I, I could be the only one who thinks this or wrong, but I feel like the movie tries too hard to make it seem like everything's going to be okay with Royal. Like, I feel like what Royal Tenenbaums does really well is, like, leave characters off and not necessarily happily ever after spots. Mm -hmm. I feel like with Royal, it was like, man, he really tried his hardest being a shit for 40 years and six weeks makes it all better. Movie does say, like, you can't make up for 40 years of lost time. I believe there's some line like that in there, or 30 years, whatever it is. But I just I just felt like it was a little too... Uh, sitcom-y sentimental like oh shucks the deadbeat dad who left his kids he's really trying so let's let's welcome him back into our lives when in real life no fuck that guy fuck royal get him out of here never talk to him again i felt like that just turn was a little for especially for chaz i just felt was like a little too fast and a little too hollywoody when the rest of the movie is so well grounded and well thought out um, and not that Chaz can't have a self-reflective moment to like maybe reconsider a relationship. Just watching it this time, I just felt that was a uh, oh, we're cool now. When I don't know, I could be looking too much, but that's on the second watch. I just was I felt Royal's toxicity was so intense that redemption is almost impossible. He does I save his two really... children from being killed, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really uh, great point, Connor. And I think that is where a situation this sort of speedy redemption narrative, I feel like that's where Wes Anderson's uh, sort of storytelling framework works really well, where it's like, you don't quite know where this story exists in reality. And there is a lot of sort of like delusional elements to it as far as like this family, these characters are very staged. There's a lot of sort of, storytelling elements to it. I mean, Alec Baldwin is narrating the fucking story. 
And also in Royal's tombstone epitaph thing, it's like <laughs> Royal Tenenbaum, I don't know, dying, saved his, or dying. Died heroically, died. saving his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. Exactly. So already you have this sort of fable quality and this sort of like delusionally false sort of fable-like elements to the story. And so in many ways, I feel like this unrealistically speedy resolution plays into that sort of story-like or fable quality. Even if in real life, it would take years, if maybe never, for a father to repair, to go through all of the considered steps to try to repair the relationship with his family. I think within the context of this sort of like dollhouse that Wes Anderson essentially creates, I think it kind of works. His movies have often been described as shoebox dioramas where like everything is within a tightly controlled environment and presentation and everything is part of that presentation. And I think that that's as true here as in any of his films. The one thing though, that I think separates it from those other films and perhaps makes it his best is that we have Royal. Royal is a little bit more grounded of a character. He's a little bit more realistic than the heightened archetypal characters that we encounter through their quirks and through their idiosyncrasies. Royal is a familiar shitty guy through which we can navigate the eccentricities of this world. And I think it strikes a nice balance where I agree, Connor, in the sense that the resolution is too fast and tidy, but I'm not necessarily going to Wes Anderson films for their realism. That having been said, the ones that have pushed me away are the ones that stray too far from it. So I think that Royal is an essential ballast for us as almost an audience surrogate to navigate these strange idiosyncratic people and their neuroses, personalities, and relationships to each other. I think, I think, Ethleen, I think she's also quite grounded. And I, I feel like her responses to most things felt very real. Her responses to Royal <laughs> by crying initially thinking that her husband or former husband is dying to slapping him, the anger, but also the sort of maternal groundedness she has with her, her own children, uh, where she clearly was an encouraging mother, but she also has some, or yeah, I also sense some like distance that maybe she's always not as like forthcoming with her kids as she maybe could, or like, I don't know uh, what any mom is supposed to do, but like, I, I feel like she also doesn't have the sort of larger than life idiosyncratic like character elements that the children do. And I think that also to your point, Dave uh, does is, is a grounding element in the movie too, uh, like Royal. Yeah. I think and Ellen, very and nicely, Houston yeah. is just awesome. And I'm like, I always, <laughs> I want her to, Well, because I could go on about these characters forever, because I truly love and genuinely love each of these characters, even for their flaws. Uh, There's a lot of very airtight filmmaking going on here, too, that I wanted to briefly touch on. One thing this movie reminds me of a lot is, strangely enough, Goodfellas, because of its music supervision and uh, curation, I think that it is airtight. It's not only a fantastic soundtrack, but almost every song featured is narratively functional. Countless examples. We open with Hey Jude while walking us through the troubled history of the family, a song written and recorded while the Beatles' relationships to one another were famously strained. 
We have uh, Paul Simon's Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, a song about a youthful friendship scorned by the narrator's parents, set against Royal taking Ari and Uzi out on the sly to raise hell against their father's wishes. We have uh, Vince Guaraldi trio's Christmas Time is Here as Royal and Margot seek to mend their differences in this swanky ice cream parlor. A probable nod to Charlie Brown, which focuses on the children's perspectives while the adult's voices remain indecipherable. Uh, at the end of the movie, of course, we have at Royal's gravesite, them exiting uh, the funeral to Van Morrison's Everyone with the opening lyric, We Shall Walk Again, illustrating that this chapter of their lives behind them, the Tenenbaums have licked their wounds and found some sense of closure and are ready to venture forward anew. Two of the really big ones that stand out are uh, Richie's suicide attempt set to Elliot Smith's Needle in the Hay, uh, a song that arrives at a moment of tension without layering or crescendo, but instead is a drawn out four bar strummed single chord just as everyone is rushing to the hospital leaving us as well as the characters anxiously unsure if Richie's alive or dead and then of course the stunning scene where Margot meets Richie by way of the green line bus uh, as she steps out you can actually if you really pay attention or have the sound cranked up hear the room tone the like ambient atmosphere of the scene sonically drop out before Nico's these days takes over as she approaches in slow motion which is a perfect illustration of the moment between the two characters, the whole world falls away and becomes secondary to their reunion. So it's just so deeply considered uh, where these songs are placed and what songs are utilized, I think. And it was also, like I said, this is a movie of firsts for me. Most of these artists in 2001, at the age of like 14, I had not heard before. Uh, shockingly enough, including the Ramones, which uh, we get Judy as a punk set to uh, Margot's uh, investigative backdrop. And hearing those chords for the first time was just like, oh, this is like the rest of my music taste for the rest of my life and has remained so. So some wonderful music supervision in, at play here. I feel like some we've talked about, uh, I feel like we talked about this in uh, Garden State about like music su supervision and when it works and then when it's just cloying and annoying and because um, like sometimes I'm I'm sort of a little bit wary, I think, of like movies that overly rely on like good like needle drops or good songs. But I mm -hmm. think, Dave, I think you're 100 percent right that this movie does beautifully combine. There's such an intentionality with the songs that are chosen and that it doesn't feel like the scenes work only because the songs are great. Mm -hmm. Everything is working beautifully on in a sort of a balanced way. It's so funny going back to watching a movie that's like, oh, wow, Royal Tenenbaums was so formative to my music taste. Even though I watched the movie years and years after it came out, but my cousin who introduced me to a lot of these bands and uh, groups you know, like that um, loved this movie back when it came out in 2001. So it's just kind of funny to just go back in time. Juno is similar. Haven't seen that movie in years, uh, but like Don Sebastian are on there. That's another for me, really iconic and incredibly informative soundtrack. And so it was just kind of fun to go back like, Oh, I can really trace all the paths of so many of these bands that I like, um, especially, yeah, just yeah, everything you said, Dave. I, th I think also the use of the Christmas music in non Christmas scenes is so brilliant because it, because at first I was like, wait, is this like a Christmas movie? Like why I I'd forgotten repeatedly especially in right margot scenes you have the like the christmas theme playing with what song is it uh christmas time is here the vince christmas time is here and it's so that in that case that 
the choice of song is playing with the idea of like imposing Christmas music or like placing Christmas music atop any scene is going to sort of like create this sort of saccharine sentimentality, even if it's unearned. And I think it so brilliantly speaks to Royal trying to essentially like win back his relationships with his children that, that he's let like fall away. And it's like no Christmas music is going to repair this relationship and infuse these scenes with real sentence, like real feelings of like family, uh, like many Christmas songs try to do. And so that's a case where it's like going against or, or very intentionally uh, pairing something like a Christmas song with a scene in order to kind of shed light on how songs function in other contexts, like Christmas songs and Christmas stories. It's also in that way, essentially uh, utilized that song when Royal's being kicked out of the house after this ruse has collapsed and it's collapsed. And one of my favorite dialogue exchanges in any movie, uh, he's talking to Richie outside as it's just starting to faintly snow down. And um, Royal says to Richie, you know, Richie, this this illness, this closeness to death, it's had a profound effect on me. I feel like a totally different person. And then Richie, finally disillusioned with his father's nonsense, says, Dad, you were never really dying. Then after a pause, uh, Royal, still smiling, but I'm going to live. Just like completely missing the point of his own ruse exposed and, and the false sentimentality of it. Set, uh, as you said, to a, a sentimentalizing kind of tr- song, which is an interesting contrast. Um, some really great stuff also here about uh, the design of the film. Uh, the wardrobe of the characters, Connor, as you pointed out before, Richie and Margot still dress as they did as children, illustrating Arrested Development. Uh, no pun intended, by the way. Uh, apparently, uh, Mitchell Hurwitz, upon seeing Royal Tenenbaums and finishing his first draft of the first season of the show, Arrested Development, was so frustrated that he almost threw his script out the window. <laughs> because it's... It's pretty it's it's two birds with the same nest flying in different directions as far as those two properties. Both of them great, I think, at least eh, for three seasons. There's also Chaz and his son's matching red tracksuits, as we've alluded to. Ben Seller asked what was up with this on the set. And apparently Wes Anderson improvised an answer saying that in an emergency, matching red clothing is easily identifiable. But then later on in the director's commentary said that it was just an image that he had in his head and wanted to run with. But people have extracted um, further meaning from it since then, you know, uh, tr- them being tracksuits is synonymous with the family collectively running from something, uh, perhaps unaddressed trauma and its impact on the family. Uh, you can extend this to secondary characters. Uh, Henry's rich blue blazer kind of sets him apart from the Tenenbaums family's muted pastels. Uh, Eli, Owen Wilson's character's Southwestern motif, kind of symbolic of trying on different identities in an effort to find himself. And you can extend this line of thinking further into the rooms of the Tenenbaum house. Uh, as we've discussed, Chaz's childhood room looks, looks more like an office, like an illustration of control uh, and sanctuary. Margot's zebra print wallpaper, an illustration of both her desire to escape and her othering as an adopted sibling. Richie's rather telling portraits of his sister hung on the wall, not in a grid or formation, but the way that he feels that they fit. And... So yeah, again, every element of this movie is so meticulously crafted that it all but screams its own subtext, which makes for choices that some find grating in their transparency, but they're undeniably effective even on a first viewing. It's a film with tremendous attention to detail and rewards an audience's attention to it, at least in my opinion. So much so that I actually noticed something new this time. Uh, When Chaz and uh, Royal are having this confrontation and they go into the little games closet, uh, or excuse me, it's after that. Uh, After the games closet is introduced, 
uh, this wall of different board games that's in the Tenenbaum house, uh, and it's still existing relic of their childhood that's long been abandoned. We see after Ethleen is kind of conflicted about everything, uh, Royal's illness and tells Henry, look, I'm not going to go out with you tonight. I don't think, I don't think it's the right time right now. Uh, which is part of Royal's plan. Royal's meeting with Pagoda inside that closet saying like, ha we got the sucker on the ropes. The very next shot is just a static shot of the board games in the closet. But center frame right in the middle of the shot is Risk, a game of competitive strategy and conquering. It's so rich in detail. I think one thing that I had been thinking about in rewatching it, um, as you've mentioned, the character of Pagoda, I think for like, watching it initially, I feel like a lot of the like scenes between Royal and Pagoda, a lot of those lines are like classic lines that, you know, replay in my brain. I think the one thing that, or among some other things, but upon rewatching, I feel like the, the elements that Wes Anderson uses that work in other parts of his story, sort of like sort of idiosyncratic elements of characters, quirkiness, et cetera, I think that in the the character of Pagoda, it's that character is used too much as a device. I think that quirkiness airs into sort of exoticization of like that character, uh, like who's Indian. Um, and I think that is an element of the movie that I, I, I would be think I really got me thinking more about, um, the treatment of, I think, many characters of color in Wes Anderson films, and I feel like that is for like a larger conversation. But I think in the in the example of Pagoda, that was one thing where I didn't feel like I wasn't laughing as much as I remember when I first was watching the film earlier in my life. There's some great lines and dialogue, but I think that the character ends up being a little bit too dimensionless and within Wes Anderson's uh, sort of framing, he turns into, as I said, more device than character. I definitely agree. It's also a problem in Darjeeling Limited and uh, especially in Isle of Dogs. Um, so it's 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 not a critique I'm unfamiliar with as applies to Anderson and one that I don't disagree with. Um, that having been said, uh, aside from other little... Um, I guess production note that I thought was kind of crazy uh, before we just round things out with our favorite scenes. Uh, one that really stood out for me is uh, the history of Mordecai, the family bird. Um, so the bird cast as Mordecai, uh, this some production history, uh, the family's trained falcon, was kidnapped for a ransom during filming. Uh, ultimately, the film's budget uh, being what it was and the time constraints that they had, they opted to have a different bird fill in for the remainder of the shoot. They did eventually get the original bird back, but that's why when Mordecai does return to Richie has more white feathers. And this was worked into the script uh, with Richie musing that sometimes when people have traumatic experiences, it can turn their hair white. Upon Richie stating this theory to Margo at the end of the film, uh, as they both kind of navigated and recovered their secret love for one another and confronting it, she coyly offers, well, I'm sure he'll get over it, which is a nice nod of closure that the both of them have found. And sort of like Mordecai being a general metaphor for their relationship, when he goes to confront Eli about Margot's knowledge of the letter that he wrote him confessing his love for Margot, uh, just at the establishing shot of that, when he's standing outside Eli's apartment, you hear a screech in the background. And it's so pronounced that Richie turns around, almost the recognizing the lingering metaphor of Mordecai as a looming presence that is an unaddressed thing within the family. 
So uh, a lot there and uh, a lot of legwork to make uh, make excuses in the script for the bird actually having been stolen. I would have never known. Those are some beautiful scenes with the with the hawk. Even though falconry, I'm like, mm, questionable. Mm, yeah. But especially I, in I New York, for a beautiful, yeah, a beautiful uh, return when, yeah, Mordecai comes back and the white feather and trauma thing. I believed as not a production mishap, but as a real storytelling element. So good on your feet filmmaking, yeah. And some beautiful shots of New York. And I love how, of course, it's not New York because it's like 375th Street and like sort of some fantastic. Gypsy Cab, the the Green Line bus. The one iconic location we have is Battery Park and they digitally removed the Statue of Liberty. So it is a fairy tale vision of New York, which is very cool also. But such great shots. And yeah, uh, like I, when I, I lived in New York and I lived near that, ha- the Royal Tenenbaum's house and would walk past it on the way to the D train. I was like, ooh, I, but I'm dying to know like what it was because I feel like it would be hard to get an entire house to fill the interiors. So maybe he filmed somewhere else. I don't really know. And just did they used ex- upwards of 300 sets. Oh, well, makes sense. <laughs> And that rooftop gym, dope. I love that when Royal <laughs> goes to chase down the uh, the twins or the sons to try to start hanging out with them. Well, all that going a long way to say that uh, I I could talk about this movie for another, I'd guess, two hours. But uh, <laughs> in the interest of respecting everyone's time and uh, not only my co-host, but the listeners, and I'm so grateful for everyone for um, for indulging me as we've gone down this rabbit hole. Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, I, I it's easily top 10 for me and one that I enjoy a little bit more every time. Before we conclude, does anyone else have anything they'd like to add? Any final musings about the Royal Tenenbaums or, or any last little nuggets or scenes that we want to highlight uh, before we kind of wrap things up? The moment that had me laughing out loud uh, was when Royal gets kicked out after his whole illness. You know, it's conspiracy is revealed and then uh, asking Pagoda for help and then Pagoda stabs him. And you then, son of a bitch! <laughs> he says, that's the last time you'll stab me. And previously there was a story about how they met of Pagoda was a hired hitman to take him out, but then carried him to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just, that moment just had me just laughing out loud of Pagoda doing that. And how casual it all is, like yeah. the cab driver does nothing about it. It's so, it's so good. What is Bill Murray's character's uh, friend's name? The guy he is writing that oh, book he, with? Yeah, he's studying Dudley, uh, who is Dudley, sort of like Dudley, a, Dudley. A, a, a neuroatypical anomaly, a neurodivergent anomaly with several different compounding maladies, it seems, yeah. Right, handled with, you know, uh, not much nuance, but... There are scenes with between the two that make me laugh so much. One of them was when they're like at a conference or something, and somebody's like, "Can he tell time?" And Bill Murray's character is like, "Absolutely not," <laughs> or like something like, "No." Oh my lord, no. Oh my lord, no. And then it's like, oh, fascinating. <laughs> and Dudley is also nodding. Yes. There's also the moment too where like we're introduced to that concept, and uh, Bill Murray is talking in like a room, like half a house away, like so far away from this kid saying like his condition seems to be uh, the convergence of several different maladies. And he lists several, the last two of which are um, colorblindness and also an acute sense of hearing. And and, and then he go, as he goes to continue, Dudley interrupts from across the house saying, I'm not colorblind, am I? Proving both. 
<laughs> and Raleigh's responsive, yes, I'm afraid you are. <laughs> some, you know, some great lines. You know what scene I love because it doesn't do anything for the movie and it's just fucking funny? Um, when they are at Angelica Houston's job site, like the dig site, and it's she and Danny Glover walking together. And then Danny Glover just falls into a fucking pit. And like, <laughs> nothing to like set about. They just like move on. Like, what the fuck? But also, that's hysterical. Yeah, and also it speaks to like the clumsiness, but tenderness of his clumsiness. Like uh, when he goes and he he's there to console the family, and like it says exactly the right thing. He shows up after Richie's suicide attempt, and the first thing out of his mouth is, "How can I help?" Showing that he's truly invested in these characters and and making all of this work in spite of how distant he is from all of it and how crazy it is. But then after, like as he's he's reviewing the forms and he goes to lift up his glasses and his tie is caught in it. Like adorably, and he doesn't really notice until Ethelene just sweetly like takes it out of his glasses, and they hug. It's 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 some really wonderful tender stuff. And speaking of which, the the one scene that really gets me every time, and I've not, I've, I I don't again, I, I it's over two dozen times I've seen this movie. The one scene that I cry at every time is this wonderful ending. It wraps pretty much everything up in this one shot as it kind of goes the length of the fire engine that's outside the house because of the emergency of the crash car into the house. And we just see like all the different character resolutions and Royal buying a spark plug, the uh, Dalmatian dog going back to Chaz's, uh, Buckley. I thought, well, so yeah, bad. after, after Buckley is killed by uh, Eli's crashing into the house, buys him this Dalmatian going back to uh, Chaz's Dalmatian mice and hands it over to Chaz and says, uh, you know, what's his name? spark plug and um chaz meekly offering thank you and Rose saying you're welcome and then chaz finally breaking down in front of his father and admitting i've had a rough year dad and royal reaching out saying i know you have chazzy wonderful stuff and again a movie of first for me my first wes anderson movie first introduction to a lot of the music in this movie all of which i still truly love and have explored in, e in the case of each individual artist and also, like, the first movie that cracked me open to the idea of cinema. It was a really formative movie. It was the first time I started noticing, like, how every individual piece contributes to the whole. The movement of the camera, whether it's going from one, like, established symmetrical static shot that then pans and establishes another within the same shot, perfectly symmetrical frame through which characters pass. Um, the frenetic handheld camera energy that punctuates it every once in a while with Chaz accentuating like his sense of like alarm and uh and dismay at certain instances and a lack of control the soundtrack the meticulous set design the wardrobes it was it was kind of the first time i realized cinema is a visual language and um it's always stuck with me on that front and i suppose that uh gives us uh gives us a good point to to lead out on uh, of course, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. As always, uh, thanks to the Movie John Podcast Network, uh, who hosts a suite of really great podcasts, all of them Philly-based. And uh, and we're going to be uh, sinking our teeth into another dysfunctional family scenario uh, this coming week. Uh, but until then, of course, we want to thank you for listening. And until then, have a good whatever.
This has been a Movie John podcast. Mm-hmm.